We're almost done. Church, I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of the word. It's our tradition. If you're a guest here today, we stand so that we can focus our minds and our attention when we open scripture. Today we're reading from Acts chapter 2. Peter stood with the other 11 apostles. He raised his voice and declared, Judeans and everyone living in Jerusalem, know this, listen carefully to my words. These people aren't drunk because there was a lot of babbling going on. They're not drunk. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. Rather, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel so long ago, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young will see visions. Your elders will see dreams. Even upon my servants and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. The word of God. You could be seated. Have you taken in the artwork that is the visual for this very short sermon series? The artwork with the prophets. Um, Jeff McFarlane is our graphic designer, as you know. Have you taken this in yet? Dead prophets, living voices. One day, maybe we will publish a book, Jeff, of all of the back and forth that goes into creating such things. The conversations and the questions and the ideas and what eventually materializes, it's priceless. So last weekend after church, um, Sabbath Sunday, I think Sunday, I was with my sister. She said to me, I simply need to ask one question. That picture, are you the second person? <laughs> the one Jeff refers to as the older woman. I said to my sister, she said, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry if, that's, if I'm not supposed to ask, if it was supposed to be a little more veiled or, no, I'm not the second person, I told her. Nope, that's not me. And it's not Brene Brown. And it's not Anne Lamott. Somebody asked me if it was Brene Brown and it, nor is it any candidate running for the presidency right now. <laughs> no, right, Jeff? No. But maybe this is the point of trying to listen for living prophetic voices. Could it be we hear prophetic voices from any of us and all of us? Last week we had the words of Jesus, Matthew chapter 23 and Luke 11 side by side when Jesus scolded and said, listen, I'm sending you prophets, you kill them and then you build a memorial and you say nice things about them and you worship them, they're dead but there are living voices right in front of you. Last week I said I hear prophetic living voices, I, I can hear promptings. I suggested I hear prophetic promptings when I listen to Barry Black offer prayers in the United States Senate. I hear prophetic promptings last week when at Auschwitz people gathered to remember that 75 years ago the Red Army set these slaves free, these prisoners free. I hear prophetic prompting her voice when we stand at the foot of Mendenhall Glacier in Alaska and I watch it receding and weeping out and it's not because citizens are chattering or arguing about the environment, it's because I'm standing in front of something God created and I feel it. 
The whole earth is full of God's glory. Genesis 1 says we are to have dominion, not domination. And I feel it, the prophetic prompting or a voice. Last week, that's what we talked about. Where are the prophetic voices and promptings that you hear? We took a congregational survey. This is a smattering of the, result, of the results. Clearly, Bible and scripture was the number one answer. In this world, word cloud, the larger font means more of us answered that way. And you could answer anything you wanted. We said things like religion class at the university campus. We said signs of the times, scientific discoveries. We said social justice. We said Star Wars, the movie Star Wars. Stories, scenery, reflection, relationships. I hear the prophetic prompting through friends, through Sabbath school, sometimes through preachers. Many didn't make it on this list. The full list will publish for you to keep. We hear prophetic promptings and voices. Now there is a difference between hearing a prophetic voice and all, by the way, a prophet is doing this is calling us back to the heart of God. This is all a prophet does. Far more important than predictive warnings and if you want that kind of a conversation, pick up Daniel in the Sabbath school quarterly because that's the topic. But we're not having that topic here. Far more than predictive warnings, a prophet simply says, could I have your attention because God would like to say something to you. So in the Old Testament, uh, rather, in the Old Testament, we find people who take the role of a prophet, like the children just said, because I don't live back in that time. I can't be one of those people. In the Old Testament, there are, are those people. They have the role of being a prophet. And then we come to the New Testament, and we find that this gift, this charisma, this, this ability and skill is scattered among the people. Acts chapter 2 said, it'll be scattered among the people, maybe less the role of a prophet, but certainly the power of prophetic voice. Doesn't matter if you don't want it. The Spirit gives the gifts. Acts chapter 2 is clear. 1 Corinthians 12 is clear. Romans 12 is clear. Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, it's clear all throughout Scripture. The Spirit will give us all gifts. We don't have to ask for them. We don't have to like them. I thought I was going to be playing the piano the rest of my life in church. Serious. When I was 12 years old, the deacon would take me from Sabbath school room to Sabbath school room, and he told me, this is how you will serve your church. God gave you the gift of playing the piano, so get ready. This is what your life will be. I've been here about 15, 20 years, and I don't play the piano much. Doesn't matter if we like it or we didn't ask for it. The Spirit is going to give the gifts. Expect it. Peter said in Acts chapter 2, expect it. It's going to happen. You're all going to give the gifts. I will pour out my Spirit. Acts chapter 2, verse 17 again. Sons and daughters, young and old, slaves, men, women. The remainder of the New Testament will be a loud amen. We're all going to get gifts. By the way, we're talking about the gift of one person particularly today, but keep in mind, whoever can hear my voice today has gifts and skills and abilities. They came from God. Here's Paul repeating it in 1 Corinthians 12. A demonstration, a manifestation, a gift of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. A word of wisdom is given to, some by the, to one by the Spirit. A word of knowledge is given according uh, to the Spirit. Faith 
still by another and the same spirit, gifts of healing to another, performance of miracles, though we don't seem to see so much of that. Maybe we don't understand what a miracle is. Prophecy is given to another. The ability to tell spirits apart is given to another. Different kinds of tongues to another. The interpretation of tongues. All these things are produced by the one and same spirit who gives what that spirit wants to each person. There is a prophetic voice, and we can sometimes hear that, and then there is something else, an additional, a focused skill, a focused ability, something called a spiritual gift, a charisma. We didn't ask for it, we simply got it. Prophecy is one of these. So the one person today we're speaking about who seems to have this gift, who clearly has this gift, this charisma, Ellen White, who lives in the 19th century, None of us will get through baptismal studies. By the way, Pastor Raywin started this morning membership classes, a beautiful group of people. One of the lessons they will study is on the ministry of Ellen White. No one will come through the academy Bible classes without hearing about Ellen White. No one will come through university religion classes without hearing about Ellen White. We will hear her if we are Seventh-day Adventist Christians. We'll hear about her ministry. But it seems we have at least a couple of generations where her voice has fallen silent. I don't know all of the reasons. I can certainly tell you when I was a children's pastor studying Bible with children who told me stories like this, well, when I get in trouble, we go to the room and we read Ellen White. <sighs> Super helpful. I don't know all of the reasons why her voice has fallen silent, but we have at least a couple generations where we talk less of her. So among the families gathered in the northeastern part of our country in the 1830s and 40s is the family of Ellen Harmon. Her parents are Robert and Eunice. They are active in the, Episcopal, the Methodist Episcopal Church. She's one of eight children and she's a twin, Ellen and Elizabeth. Her father is a hat maker. They don't have a lot of money. You know, most of us know the story of Ellen, Ellen getting injured when she's very young. Someone throws a rock at her face when she's nine years old. She's injured quite severely. She withdraws from school. It doesn't keep her from being a kind and compassionate little girl. She had this yearning to pray for people. <laughs> they say when she's 10, 11, 12 years old, she would kneel down at night and pray, particularly for people who didn't know Jesus. She seemed to have this young in her life. Remember that this is 19th century America, the first part in particular, there's religious fever, religious fever, there's all of it. People are awake in America. So it is not uncommon for people to be having dreams and visions and be speaking about it. Ellen particularly had voices in her head, however, of a cruel God. She was restless when she would sleep at night. She didn't know if she could actually be in heaven because she wasn't sure about her sins and and a preacher's voice who kept telling her about a cruel God. It was her mother who eventually sent her to another minister because her mother realized she was so unsettled. And when a very young Ellen came to visit this young minister, he said to her, oh, Ellen, God loves you. Go free. He apparently also said to her, God must have something extraordinary for your life. Ellen's family 
was fractured when in 1844, October, that date setting that happened with those early Millerites who later we become Adventist Christians, but that early group picked this date, October 22, 1844, God's going to return to the earth and when it doesn't happen, this fractures Ellen's family. It fractured many families. She watched this disintegrate inside of her own home. Her mother fairly much lost her Christian faith altogether. Ellen, um, at this time in her life, she begins to see her first scenes and visions. For Ellen, this was a direct way of God calling her as a messenger, though she never called herself a prophet church. Can I say that again? She never called herself that. She clearly felt God calling her as a messenger of some kind. She would go on to have 2,000 or so visions in her life. Most of us who've grown up inside of the church We know Ellen White's role in the development of our church. We know many of these stories. If you're visiting today or if you are new to us, I wanna say with confidence, we would not be a Seventh-day Adventist church if it was not for the life of Ellen White. It simply would not have happened. History wildly testifies to this reality. Ellen, I wanna talk now for a minute about Ellen, the human being. Can we do that? Because this is the part of Ellen when I was growing up in the church that we spoke very little about. Ellen um, and, and James, they're married young. She's 17 when they get married. They have four boys, four normal little boys. I imagine hitting and slapping and toads in the pocket and you know, all the things that come from four active little children in your home. Although the pictures don't show it, you see how many boys? Two of these boys died, one at only two years of age. She was a bride at the age 17. James said he had his eye on her at one of those barn parties. Oh, you know those barn parties. She says she didn't actually notice James till much later, which is how they all say. They married, complete poverty, very few possessions, with this consuming commitment. The Lord hasn't, doesn't come, but what? What are we supposed to be doing? A consuming commitment to the work, the Millerite movement. They work almost nonstop. James sells stationery, takes whatever jobs he can. Ellen is watching very busy, active boys and also trying to help with this work. They're apart from one another quite a lot. That brings its own tension into the home. Listen, they're married. You know, many of you, what it's like to be married. So married life is the White's home as well. It wasn't always, they weren't always happy days and years for this family. I'm glad when people will tell the honest story. But there were also many happy days and moments and kind of charming moments when Ellen sends away for an ointment to rub on James' head because she wants to grow hair. She sends away in the mail and the ointment comes and she begins to rub hair on, and you can look at the next picture, did it work? (laughs) She apparently rubbed it on his chin. (laughs) She did um, feel guilty. Eventually, a nanny and help came for the home and she was out of the home and she and James worked side by side in this work. She felt guilty and grieved leaving the children. 
that were truthful to say that. She did not always have her own clear, healthy mental facilities about her. Depression was real in their home for her. And they sat around the fire and ate meals like all the rest of us. There's one charming story of, of uh, tying together rugs to create rags to create rugs, these things called rag rugs, and they would do this night after night. Perhaps they still were selling them. James did not like tying rugs together to, to uh, waste away his evening. One night he walks in, Ellen walks in while James is tying the rags together, and she finds James singing a little song he created, there'll be no rag rugs in heaven. There'll be no rag rugs in heaven. Home life, you know what that's like. That's what it's like for the whites. One historian has said to be alive in the 19th century, to be an American in the 19th century and be alive is to be a reformer. There are no shortage of issues. This is the world Ellen and James raised their family in. Everyone had an idea for changing their world. You and I today feel a little more exhausted and angry at our world, but imagine if we were before or after kind of this era we find ourselves in where we felt hopeful we could actually bring change. This is what it was to be alive in the 19th century. Ellen and James and the early Adventists, they drank this up. They sought to change their world in a variety of ways. There's a volunteer society for everything. By 1850, the life expectancy is 41 years of age. So look around those of you almost 40 year olds who are feeling kind of young. The life expectancy is 41. The cholera epidemic comes. We can't eat fresh fruits and vegetables now, and we have meat markets with secondhand and reused meat, and we have creatures running in the same streets we walk in and we're spitting in, and the cows and the horses are, are making their mess in, and we're sick, and we can't go to the hospital because that's where you die. This, all of this is what stirs the, this. There must be something we can do. I know we'll get healthy. This is where the idea for health reform comes. Ellen White looks around, these early Adventists, the healthiest one among them, happened to be vegetarian. His name is Joseph Bates. If he's vegetarian, maybe we should all be vegetarian, she decides. Now remember at this time, they're drinking and eating all the things. But Bates tells her she should stop eating swine in particular. You like a good slab of bacon on your sandwich? Don't answer. I know who you are. <laughs> Sometimes we eat lunch together. You could call yourself an early Adventist because they ate swine. <laughs> so Joseph Bates tells her she should give up swine and she says to bro Brother Bates, the Lord may have given you that message but he did not give it to me. <laughs> so until such time God clearly gives me that message, I shall eat my swine. She does decide though, maybe she should become vegetarian. So she begins cooking vegetarian meals. She admits that the first vegetarian meal she put on the table actually repulsed her. <laughs> and the first whole wheat loaf of bread, she said to her stomach sitting at the table, stomach, you will eat this or you will have no food at all. And she went out without food for three days. And then she ate. 
Dress reform is the same way. Women are wearing these armor-like dresses that uh, weigh 15 pounds and they drag in the road. Ellen White gets this idea, we should adjust that. First of all, it's not good for your organs to squeeze them. Second of all, you're kicking up the germs, so the dress reform became an idea she worked on. Temperance is in the air. Even Christians and conservative Christians could drink, but we come to a time period where we decide the alcohol is a sin and this is a moral issue and we need to get rid of the alcohol and groups of reformers would pray down the saloons. 1.5 million people out of 15 million citizens in the states signed pledges to give up alcohol. Several states passed laws for abstinence, and then those were all repealed before the Civil War, but then eventually comes the 18th Amendment, no more alcohol. Ellen White becomes a popular speaker on this particular topic, the abstinence of alcohol, and uh, her largest crowds she addressed were on this temperance topic. She had a dream one night about this. She had a dream that there was a temperance, the temperance movement was happening, she was in Iowa, I don't pick cities that are simply in the news during the week. She was in Iowa. They're, at, they're signing temperance pledges, and there's a nice-looking gentleman, and he can't seem to get any of these Advent believers to sign the pledges, and he says to her, your group ought to be at the front, not the tail of this issue. And she uh, wakes from this dream when she wakes from this dream, she tells this vision to the people around her, and here's her summary. Shall we, Advent believers, vote for prohibition? Yes, to a man everywhere, she replied. Perhaps I shall shock some of you if I say, if necessary, vote on the Sabbath day, if you cannot do it any other time. Did you know that was your Ellen? If you have to skip church to go vote, go do it. Issue by issue, challenge by challenge. This is how the prophetic gift of Ellen White happened. People would later say of this moment that they could see, they could see her gift of prophecy nudging them along. This is how it shaped and grew the church. There was an education reform. Students should graduate from colleges, schools, universities that are accredited and and obey the laws in the country. She insisted upon that. That's how the College of Medical Evangelists, Loma Linda, happened. We will have a medical school that's accredited. Education for her, it's a part of redemption. And then we come to the bloodiest conversation, the bloodiest war in our country, the Civil War, when the topic is the release of slaves. This is a topic that polarized the country and it polarized Christians, friends, if we're not aware, the Methodist church split the Northern and Southern Methodists over this topic. The Baptist denomination followed. The Fugitive Slave Act is, Act is passed, and that means all of us citizens who are alive, if we see a runaway escaping slave, we're all held accountable to return that slave to the master. We're to help the slave catchers return these people. Ellen White says of this moment that Slavery is a stench in the nostril of the Lord. A stench. The Fugitive Slave Act set the stage for civil disobedience, and Advent Christians 
in the front of the line. Early Adventists stood against slavery. It's a moral issue. She would tell the flock, the law of our land requiring us to deliver a slave to his master, we are not to obey. You take that in for a minute, church? We must abide by the consequences of violating this law. The slave is not the property of any man. God is the rightful master and man has not right to take God's workmanship into his hands and claim him as his own. We should stand against this and issue by issue was the question, should we also stand against this and that and the other in society when we see it? It turns out Ellen White stands against almost all oppressive structures and systems she witnesses. The women's question comes up, should we stand against that? Suffrage movement is getting, uh, getting some steam and taking off. She starts to speak into that issue and it is her brother who tells her, can you please stop, you're embarrassing the family. See, she comes from a real family, real consequences. Sit down, sister. Yes, she said, we should take a stand on these oppressive conversations and realities. But she also had this skill of standing with the brethren and they mostly were brethren in these meetings and she had some stable ability about her when the brethren were going at it. In 1888, she could stand there between Elder Smith and Elder Butler and tell them to knock it off. I kind of like my words better than hers. She says, I believe her language to them is not so sharp and it stopped the conversation. Not so sharp, we can have differences of opinions, but we don't have to be angry at each other. Oh, do we need that voice today. Not so sharp. Early Adventists were immersed in their world. Ellen White is immersed in her world. They not only live in it, they respond to it, friends. So when she is older and she goes to Australia, they kind of shoo her out of the space, the brethren. Even when she gets to Australia, she says, I've not come to Australia to devote my time and strength to keeping you in good spirits. I'm going to where there's darkness. I've lived my entire life inside of our faith community. I've lived my entire life with Ellen White. We now have a couple of generations where her voice has fallen silent. And I wonder, you must wonder too. Pastor Sam most recently on the university campus taught that introduction to Adventism class year after year after year. Do you remember when he told us this story? He loved to talk about the story of the first day of class when he would ask students sitting there, you can only get into this class if you're not a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. And he would ask the students, what have you heard about Seventh-day Adventists? And one of his favorite answers is when the student says, that L-N-G-Y thing. <laughs> I think the student called it a thingy. I don't know what it means, but you have an L-N-G-Y thingy. I know you care about that. I've lived all my life, and I wonder why is her voice silent? Is it because of the parents who sit their children down and read Ellen White as punishment? Is it because last month at camp meeting, far away from here, but it could have happened in my home state of Oregon, 
When I preached a sermon, a couple came quickly to me with much, uh, just, there's just frustration. And they said to me, you would not have preached that sermon and asked those questions if you read Sister White. And we went on to have a very long listening session. Because, because those shouldn't be questions because Ellen White says such and such and when Ellen White says such and such, that settles this story. Your questions actually aren't valid. And when I suggest, actually, that's not how we read Ellen White, oh my. Is this why, church? Ellen White's voice falls a little silent because of the way we've treated her. In the 1940s, and if you'd like to read about that struggle when Ellen White dies and now what to do with all of the literature and the White family and the White estate and the general conference and the authority of the church and the decision is finally made, the gift of prophecy is for what? The common good of the church. So the decision is finally made that the general conference will will take control of what happens to her books and her literature, most of it. If you'd like to read about that battle and the relationships involved, picked up Gil Valentine's book on that topic, it's worth your time. But by the 1940s, the church looks at her writings a little more as a thus says the Lord. That's really what happens. Her spoken and published words move to a new status a little more in the category of fundamental inerrancy. She would object. Ellen White said in 1885, the Bible and the Bible alone is our creed, the sole bond of union. All who bow to his holy word will be in harmony. There is no step one, step two, the Bible and Ellen White. There there is the Bible and the Bible alone. Maybe it's us. We don't get her here to ask these questions. We didn't get to live. She didn't, wasn't able to live the last 160, 70 years to see what's become of God's world. So much we don't get to discuss on this topic. But if Ellen White, the Ellen White who was presented to you is the Ellen White who makes people feel bad and for some reason we kinda like, we feel good about feeling bad. If that's the Ellen White that was presented to you, she would object to that as well. That's not what her voice is for. That's not what the gift of prophecy is for. And if somehow we move to trusting the messenger instead of the message, then maybe we have our own repenting to do. If people say to you, do you believe in Ellen White? That's not actually the question. Because to believe in Ellen White makes Ellen White an idol or the statue or something more or other than a human being. Am I right? So it's not the question, do you believe in Ellen White? You see, when Ellen White speaks, what the beautiful, the beautiful outcome of prophetic words is that they ring true. There's something in that message that calls you to the heart of God. You believe in God. And this happened to be the messenger that turned my eyes back towards God. Do you believe Ellen White has blessed us? Yes. What do you want to do with Ellen White? Each of us has to make our own decision. Each of us makes our own way. In 2014, the Oxford Press produced a book called The American Prophet. 
It's interesting to read from another perspective, not necessarily inside the church. The first word of that book says, the Victorian era was exceptional and so was Ellen White. Do you realize that in her time, she lived from the Victorian era all the way to the evolution, the Industrial Revolution. During her life, that happened. We've lived through televisions to iPhones, right? Think about it the same way. Go back to the earliest TV set you've seen and the earliest computer you've seen and the first iteration of a cell phone you've seen and then a phone we can carry around the world that will do all of it. We've lived through that. She lived through this, a horse and carriage. That's how you got around. And you did it in town and you did it across country. From the horse and carriage to the steam engine, which made life a little more efficient, but it also brought in train schedules and the clocks. From the steam engine to the car, when the first automobiles came out, nobody was super happy with this adjustment to our life. She lives from the Enlightenment era all the way to the Industrial Revolution. Historians tell us this is a time where there's a quest for order. So in her time, in her life, time zones and clocks and schedules and the printing press and a growing awareness that time is passing and what am I doing with my life? This was the culture. Religious structures are changing, words and words and more words and sermons and pamphlets and so many words. And during Ellen White's lifetime, the fiery judgment of the Lord became more the attentive, kind of maternal, intimate Jesus in her lifetime. So when you read her books and you can see the difference, that's because she lived through it. And in her lifetime, culture had its own setbacks. Yeah, enslavement of black people ended, but Jim Crow began. She ranks as one of those most gifted and influential leaders in American history. This is from the people at the Oxford Press book, 2014. They say of her, one of the most influential leaders in American history, male or female. Co-founder of a church with one of the largest educational, hospital, publishing, missionary outreach programs. A product of her age and a producer of her age. Remarkable, they call her. What do you want to do with Ellen White? One person with a gift of prophecy in a time but for all times. Everyone needs to make their own decision. When I was at the Pacific Press a few years ago, I went into the vault and here were all these pictures of Ellen White. Picture after picture after picture and document after document and file after file and the more I sat still with her life swirling all around me, the more I could sense a human, a person with a family who grieved the loss of a son whose mental health was not always what she wanted it to be. A person who who felt these deep impulses for the spiritual health for all of us, spiritual care for all of us. What do you want to do with Ellen White? Maybe we can find a new journey, church. Because when we ask children today about Ellen White, they say, "We, we think we've heard of her. Oh, are those the books that grandma has on the shelves? I know sometimes the preacher quotes her. Maybe we can find a new journey with Ellen White. 
I suggest you pick up one book, not all of them, and you dwell a little while. My favorite is Ministry of Healing. Dwell a little while. Don't find 50 quotes. Take one or two and see if you can live with them for a year or five or 10 and what happens to you. From the Ministry of Healing, here's one of my favorites. The strongest argument in favor of the gospel is a loving and lovable Christian. You hardly need more than that for the next two years of life. We've adapted this one here at La Sierra. You may remember a few years ago during one church, the strongest argument in favor of the gospel is a loving and lovable church, we said. Here's another one that's been important to La Sierra in our history. There's no excuse for anyone in taking the position that there is no more truth to be revealed and that all our expositions of scripture are without error. The fact that certain doctrines have been held as truth for many years by our people is not a proof that our ideas are infallible. Age will not make error into truth, and truth can afford to be fair. And maybe more than any other, from the 1970s, 80s, 90s through today, this is quintessential Ellen White in La Sierra from Gospel Workers. Every truth in the word of God must be studied in the light that streams from the cross of Calvary. God is not saving us because of the prophetic gift of Ellen White. God is not saving us because of our good theology. God is not saving us because of Sabbath time. God is saving us because God saves. And what we pray is that the ministry of Ellen will help us see a God who saves. Remember the voice in her head, oh, Ellen, God loves you. Go free, go free, amen.